this morning we're going to go to the scriptures, um, and uh, we want to dive in. This morning is first Sunday, so there's no kids program. Um, we're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 10, and I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, once again we come to your word. And help us to hear your words and not mine. To know your spirit. Direction and wisdom. Correction, instruction. Encouragement. Lord, but in all things that you would be exalted. And that your son would be exalted above all that we know. And feel and believe. Lord, that these written words would reveal to us the living word. We pray this through the power of his resurrection and the hope of his return. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Um, last week, we, we, we got into um, some of the, uh, the kind of weird passages of the Revelation. And when you're talking about the weird passages of an already weird book, um, you're really getting weird. Um, and uh, we, we discussed the, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and how um, the, the work of the gospel is not uh, based on our proficiency and ability and manipulation and things. Um, there were a couple of questions that were raised about that that hopefully will be answered in this week's message. Um, unfortunately, you can never say everything you need to say. Um, because if we said everything we needed to say every time we spoke, we'd never get anything done. Um, and so as we look at, at what is coming out of this text, um, we will see uh, hopefully a, a, a rounded perspective of what, um, what God was saying to John. So I want to um, start with this. I want to start with a reminder uh, about what we're reading. Uh, this undeniably weird book... Um, is very difficult to get into, and if we're not careful, we get lost in the minutia of it. And so you need to, if you haven't done this yet, you need to make sure that you're aware when we read the Revelation that there are two, there's a twofold purpose to these visions. There is a twofold purpose to these visions. The number one purpose of the Revelation is the exaltation of Christ. He is being elevated. He is being exalted. He is being demonstrated to be the great and true, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, um, the source of all things. So the exaltation of Christ is the number one priority of this book. But the second part of that is the, the, um, the encouragement of the church to, to the work of Christ. When people come to the book of the Revelation and they want to see in the Revelation, uh, only want to see judgment and hellfire and brimstone and setting dates for the end of the world, you miss the point. Now, does the book of the Revelation deal with hellfire and brimstone in the end of the world? Yes, it does. It deals with plagues and disasters and destruction. It does deal with those things. It does deal with judgment. But we have to remember that the purpose of that revelation is not so we can walk around and go, ha ha, but rather that we as the church would be ex encouraged to act as the church, to work as the church. 
And periodically in the Revelation, we get these uh, very, very difficult negative passages. And we dealt with one of those last week. We dealt with this, this concept that all these great things, these terrible things are going to happen. That the heavens, literally hell on earth is going to be unleashed. And that despite that, there are going to be those that will refuse to listen. They simply will not hear what God is trying to say. And if we dwell only on that, this by the way, if there's no reason above, no other reason, and there are plenty of better reasons, but if there's no other reason than to make sure that when, when we're looking at a book like this, you look at the big picture and not try to spot point it, is it's very easy to make make incorrect interpretations based on I just read this passage or I just heard this one sermon. We have to make sure that we look at it as a big idea, a big picture. So the passage we dealt with last week was really very judgment, negative. There are going to be people that aren't going to hear. And so if we were writing the Revelation, we would probably follow that with, and so aren't we great? Because we're, we're, we're the ones who listen. But that's not what God does. Uh, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 10. And this is the Apostle John. He says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll uh, open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 11, but chapter 11 is an extension of this passage. I would encourage you to read them together. um, And we'll get into a little bit of the themes of it, just because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time reading through all the details. Chapter 11 then deals with two witnesses. Um who are um, placed in in the temple court and they are preaching and they're given power to discern righteousness and unrighteousness, to consume the unrighteous with fire from their mouths, which is an interesting image. Um, And uh, they're slaughtered and then they're resurrected. There's a whole lot of things that go into it. I just, for the sake of time, I don't want to get into too much of the details about it. Um, But really it is an extension of this passage here. So John sees this colossal angel. 
An angel so big that his head is shrouded in the clouds. And his feet, one foot is on the dry land and one foot is on the sea. Right? Um, and in his hand he's got a little scroll. Uh, and, and the word scroll, biblos, um, is what's being translated as scroll here. Book, scroll, uh, something. Um, and this is a biblaridion. I know you all are very excited about that. Um, but it's, it's a diminutive term. It, it's a small term. Um, Greek has these endings that you put on the ends of words and they make them little things. Um, one of Paul's closest friends was a couple, um, Aquila and Prisca. Um, but when you read about Aquila and Prisca, uh, in Paul's writing, he always refer, refers to her as Priscilla. Um, that illa at the end of it is a diminutive term, my precious or my beautiful or my, my little Prisca, um, this special person. And Greek has that, and eridon is one of those words. It, it means, um, it could mean a part, uh, it could mean a small version, an abridgment. We don't really know what it is. Um, it could simply mean we've got a gigantic angel and he's got a regular sized book in his hand and it looks kind of small. All right, that's, that's what it could mean. Um, we really don't know. But this angel is there and these voices cry out and then a voice, or these trumpets blast and there are these thunders sound and John goes to write down what they say and a voice comes from heaven and says, seal that up, don't write that yet. It's not time. The mystery has not yet been fulfilled. And everybody I have ever read about this wants to tell you what it was that was said. And I'm just going to tell you right now, we don't know. We have no idea what was being said because John did what the voice from heaven told him to do, just like most people who hear a voice from heaven should do. You know, He didn't write it down. So we don't know what, he, what, what it actually entails. But we do have this then this moment that, that clues us in as to what is going on in this crazy vision. When we're reading it and the voice says, go and take the scroll, in verse 8, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, and then describes the fact that when he eats the scroll, it will be sweet in his mouth and it will be bitter in his belly. This is a very, very clear literary allusion to the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet. You don't have to go back there um, if you're not sure where the book of Ezekiel is. It's this giant book in the middle of the Old Testament. But I just want to read the statement that is made to the prophet Ezekiel at the beginning of his prophecies. Now, Ezekiel is a prophet um, who lived at a period when the people of Israel were in exile. They had been taken captive. Um, by the Babylonians, and they were living away from Jerusalem. There was no temple, all right? And so they are waiting for the restoration of God's, God's will and God's people and God's land. And Ezekiel receives the only book in the Bible weirder than the Revelation is the book of Ezekiel. Um, and, but he receives this, this vision in Ezekiel chapter 3, he says, he said to me, this, this person that's speaking to him, this angel that's speaking to him, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat and he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, 
Go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them, for you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your speak people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord of God, the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. In this vision, God puts John, and by extension, us, the church, the righteous, the believers, he puts us in the lineage of the prophet. He says in, in Revelation, this passage that we've been reading, he says to them at one point in verse 7, he says, the trumpet shall be sounded, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And then he says to, the, to John in verse 11, you must again prophesy. So in other words, there was a message that was meant to be proclaimed from God to mankind. And that message has not changed, and we, the church, have a calling and an obligation to proclaim, to prophesy that message, just as Ezekiel was told to proclaim the message. Whether they hear or not. Whether they hear or not. See, it is very, very easy, and, and it's very easy to misunderstand um, and, and kind of extrapolate from the notion that I shared this past week, and th there was a very good question asked of me about this, that um, because it is the Spirit of God that works and speaks to people, why should I do anything? I just leave it up to God. This is called hyper-Calvinism. Um, it is the belief that God will save who God will save, and it's his job anyway, so there's no reason for me to get in the way. Because, believe it or not, I, I've run into theologians who say, if you accidentally shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who was not chosen to hear that, you've actually doubled their condemnation. Hogwash. Hogwash. If you're unfamiliar with my, my slightly farmy, uh, colloquial statement, hogwash. It's what comes off a pig after you wash it. All right? That's what that word means. That is completely contrary to Scripture. The, the, the prophet Ezekiel was commanded to go and speak. And God even says to him, they've got foreheads that you would not believe. I have, this, I have an incredibly hard head. I know this comes as a shock to some of you. Um, in one of, uh, one of my, one of my uh, grappling sessions with one of my instructors, he accidentally put his head where my head was going. And I hit him full on with the, the crown of my head um, into his uh, forehead. I hit him, bounced off of him, 
and proceeded to keep wrestling while his head started to swell up. He had this huge knot. He's like, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, what? What happened? I'm completely oblivious. Didn't bother me. Didn't, didn't affect me. I would, my head, not even my ears weren't even ringing. He, on the other hand, was completely concussed. So I know what it's like to have a hard head. And, and the people of Israel, in Ezekiel's vision, the people of Israel are described as having a hard forehead, that their, their heads are like flint. You're just not going to get in. He said, and so God's response says, so I'm going to give you a forehead harder than theirs. I'm going to give you an, a stubborn, obstinate, driving, motivating uh, message that is going to drive you to speak even when you don't want to. That it is going to have such a, an effect upon you that you will not be able to help but speak. And then he commands them. He says, so go and speak, whether they listen or don't. And John's encouragement that is given to him by this vision is the encouragement that comes to us, the church, which is that the Spirit of God has a message for people, and whether they listen or not is immaterial to the content of the message. And our command to speak it. Now contrast that with when we read the book of the Revelation, the first couple of chapters, we see these letters to all of these churches, and so many of them have compromised the message. One of them has just allowed a false teacher, a woman, in. Um, not that women are false teachers. I've got to be careful I make that statement. This, this particular false teacher was a woman. Um, make sure I make that clear. Pastor said women are false teachers. That's not what I said. Um, this particular false teacher was a woman that, that uh, God actually refers to as a Jezebel. This is a, a reference to the evilest queen of the entire Old Testament. That she's been allowed into the church and she's teaching. Why was she allowed into the church to teach? Well, people said, well, she's, she... She motivates people, man. I mean, she packs them in. She's got a very exciting message in ministry. And, you know, well, it's not really the gospel, but it's close. It's okay. It's good, you know. We get people in. We get the money in. And, and, and all, through, all through the New Testament, we see churches that, that compromise the message just a little bit. And Paul is constantly correcting them. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Um, now, they hadn't compromised a little bit. They had compromised a whole lot. Any congregation that allows a man who's living in sin with his father's wife, there's a whole lot of compromise going on there. Um, but uh, they, had, they had started with just a little bit, hey, let the, and they had kind of, um, in the Corinthian church in particular, um, they had kind of very wealthy people that were probably hosting the church services. They, they had them in their courtyards. And, and so they, they started with, hey, why don't we have a little party before the service? And, and hey, why don't we, why don't we uh, let the poor people come in later? So, you know, so that we, we look good at the beginning of the service. You know, they can come in afterwards and eat the scraps. That'll be okay. And, and the Apostle Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then we had in the book of Colossians, um, you have this, this kind of this group that's kind of crept into the church and they've, they've kind of started to teach this kind of weird thing where like Jesus and Satan are kind of brothers and there's this eternal battle of good and evil. And, and so the best thing that you could ever do is, is kind of give up all physical things and, 
and all physical pleasure was wrong, this group called the Gnostics, or the proto-Gnostics at this point. Um, and why don't we just surrender all that? And we, you know, and, and it's not, God didn't just, it's not that God is the only God. There's some other minor gods, the Demiurge, and, and Jesus is a created being because that makes more sense. And they just kind of let these little ideas kind of creep into their church. And before too long, the Apostle Paul is saying, what is wrong with you? I mean, that's, that if you could sum up the Apostle Paul's epistles in one sentence, it's, what is wrong with you? Where did you go wrong? And for, for John, he sees this vision, and the vision is that like Ezekiel, who received a scroll and ate it, so the church receives a scroll, and it's a little scroll. It's only a part we don't, we don't get to see the whole thing. We don't get to hear the great revelation and the mystery of God. We, we get only a part of this. Can you imagine what would happen to your brain if you could see everything that God was doing with every life in the world right now? All right, Just a mushroom cloud arising above your head. So we get our part and our aspect and our little scroll. And we are called to prophesy, to speak. Now, we don't get a new revelation. We don't, we don't do like Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says, Son of man, God says to him, Son of man, do this thing. We don't get a direct voice from God. And we don't need one, because we've been given the Scriptures. We have the revelation of God. We, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the message that God has for a sick and dying world. We have it. And so we are called to prophesy. Now, if you haven't heard this, there are two kinds of prophecy in the, in the Scriptures. Um, there's uh, foretelling. This is one of those alliterations I learned from my dad, who's going to be here this weekend, Friday and Saturday. So if, you didn't come to the Bible, if you're not coming to the Biblical Imagination Conference, you're going to lose out. Because um, not only is Mike going to be there, but you could pay my dad and probably get some great stories about me. Um, they may or may not be true, but you'll get great stories. Uh, my dad used to say to me all the time, there are two kinds of prophecy in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. There's foretelling, which is what we generally think of as, as prophecy. Somebody sees a vision about the future. And then there's foretelling, just simply saying what God has for people to hear right now, at this moment. And that's the kind of prophecy that the, that the church is called into. We are called into a ministry of prophecy. And let me tell you something, the message of the gospel might be sweet to our lips, but I'm going to tell you something personally, it puts a pit in my stomach. There's a bitterness in my stomach about the gospel. And you know what the bitterness is? The realization that not everybody will hear it. When, I mean, when you walk around and you believe that the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, sent His Son to pay for the sins of the world, and anyone who is willing to accept, anyone who will take that call and say, I will follow Jesus, I, will, I accept the, the forgiveness of sins through Christ, anyone who, calls, who accepts that can be saved. When you hear a gospel that's so straightforward, it's simple, it's not easy, but it's simple, and you say, everybody should want this. And when you realize that there are people that don't want that, there is a strong temptation to calm that bitterness in your gut with compromise. Well, maybe if we just don't tell them about the whole Jesus died for your sins thing. 
Or maybe if we just kind of smooth the road, maybe we make it about, maybe we, we, we don't talk so much about life and death and, and hell and heaven. Maybe what we, what we should do is just kind of talk about how if you like this picture on Facebook enough times, Jesus will give you money. There is no more sure way to get yourself unfollowed from me than to post a picture that says, if you like this, Jesus will send you money. I, I cannot stand that kind of nonsense. Um, these super spiritual Facebook people. Anyway, um, the, the reality is that the gospel is both sweet as honey and a bitterness in our gut. Because when you really embrace what the gospel is, it drives who you are and what you do and how you speak. It, it moves and, and motivates your methodology and your actions in the course of your life. And you, you look at it. This is, I mean, this is from my perspective. I could be wrong. But for me, it, if, if God truly did what He said He did in the Gospel for the salvation of my soul and the redemption of His church and the transformation of His creation, if that really happened, man, I want to align everything I am with that. And when you've got your entire life lined up on one thing like that, and there are those you care about, that you wish would hear, but their foreheads are like flint. It is so tempting to just take a spiritual uh, uh, a Tums on that one. Oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm pushing too hard. Now, now listen, the, the gospel itself, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so contrary to our culture it doesn't need our abrasive additions. Um, by abrasive additions, I mean, I know a pastor, I, I, well, years ago, I knew a pastor who would knock on people's doors and share the gospel with them. I got no problem with somebody doing that. And if they refused to listen to him or let him pray with them, he would put his foot in the door to prevent them from closing the door and not leave until they prayed a prayer with him because that would make them good Christians. Look, we don't need that. That's what I was talking about last week, about abuses and manipulation and guilt and fear and salesmanship. We don't need to compound complexity upon the counterculture. Compound complexity upon the counterculture. Holy shnikes, is that an alliteration? Um, we, we don't need to add layers to the gospel. The gospel itself is contrarian enough. But we have to be willing to put the gospel out there and not compromise on it. You know that it, it is a bitterness in my heart, and it probably is for you too. It is a bitterness from my heart that Jesus is the only way. That He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except by Him. Man, I wish there was a loophole in that. It would make my life so much easier if there was just another way. If people could be just good enough. You know, well, they didn't know, they don't want to follow Jesus, but, but they're good people. That's got to count for something. I wish that it did. 
But if I believe the Bible is the Word of God, then I have to acknowledge that's not enough. Not of works, not of my works, not of the works of man, lest any should boast. The Apostle Paul wrote that. And I think he wrote it with a broken heart. He wished that people could be righteous on their own. But he, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that seeks after righteousness. The reality is Jesus is the only way. For a Christian, that is the reality. Following Christ is the salvation of, the, of individuals in the world. That's a bitter pill in our stomach. It should be. It should be. It's sweet to our lips, but it's bitter in our gut. But you know what? We can't compromise it. We have to honor it. We have to walk in it. Now, this ties into what happens in chapter 11. In chapter 11, there are two witnesses who stand in the temple of God. And some people see this as a prophetic thing. Some people see it as an idealized image. I'm not going to get into the details of that. Read three commentaries. You'll get seven opinions. But these two witnesses stand in the temple and they simply proclaim the truth. And they're killed for it and their bodies are left to rot in the sun. And then a voice comes from heaven and resurrects them and calls them up into the presence of God. Now, there are lots and lots of layers to that, but I want to draw one simple encouragement when we stand for the gospel whether it is popular or not when we speak the truth of God's word in love not in hatred and not in anger and not in malice when we do not compromise the simple message of Jesus Christ the reality is not everyone will listen And some people will respond negatively. They will violate your safe space. The potential exists for your martyrdom and death. You say, not in America. We have freedom of religion. And we do. But you've got to remember that the freedoms that we have experienced in America are a parenthesis in the history of mankind. For most of the history of the church, the true gospel has been stifled and stomped. And I'm in an alliterative mood today. I don't come up with these things in my office. They just come out of my mouth. Um, but these things are, are stifled and stomped by culture and society and by organized, even organized religion. But the encouragement is when we speak the gospel, when we stay true to the Lord, it doesn't matter what the world brings against us. God knows. Christ knows. We stay true to Him. We stay true to them. We stay true to the gospel. And the world can bring to bear all of its power and malice and destructive force. But that doesn't change our responsibility to speak the gospel. Now I believe 100% that I am a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the gospel. I cannot win somebody to Jesus. 
by my persuasive abilities and my winning, winning personality. I am simply a tool, an instrument in the hand of God. The Apostle Paul refers to us as God's workmanship, poema, his poems, his songs, his craftsmanship. His, he has created us for this purpose. And so we do the work of the Holy Spirit because that's what we're called to do and we're, we're led to do and built to do. And we don't get any of the credit for it any more than your hammer gets credit for putting up a wall. We're just the instruments of God. But that doesn't mean we're passive. It doesn't mean we just sit back and wait for Jesus to drop opportunity in our, in our pockets. We are called, he says, and I'm going to come back to this so we can get it. In verse 11, chapter 10 and verse 11, you must again prophesy. Not you should, or if you would, or somewhere along the line, or whenever the opportunity presents itself, you must. Why must we? It's not because of guilt and manipulation and fear. It's not because um, there, there's some kind of uh, hanging punishment over us if we don't. Hopefully we must because, it's, because the gospel is at work in us, transforming us, renewing us, moving us. So many times the prophets, one of my favorite prophets is the prophet Amos. I'll end with this. If you, you ever get this, you ever get a chance to read the prophet Amos, at one point he is challenged by an official in the court of the king. And Amos says to him, I was a goat, and I'm paraphrasing, I was out on the backside of the country with my goats eating pomegranates off a tree, and God said to me, speak, and I wish I were anywhere but here. But here I am. And this is what God said. And I can't say anything else. I love that moment. That's like the definition of being a Christian. Man, I wish I could keep my mouth shut. Somebody says to me, well, what do you think about heaven and hell? You know what I really want to say in my humanity? Oh, that's not important. Well, what are you saying? Are you really saying that the Bible teaches fill in the blank? Man, I wish it didn't. I, we've talked about this. We joke around about it, you know. I wish the Bible didn't, didn't talk about what marriage is. I wish the Bible didn't tell me I had to, you know, I have a financial responsibility to take care of my family. Um, you know, Doug Wilcox and I jokingly, he's, you know, I'm going to get him in trouble, but he and I jokingly have said, man, I wish the Bible didn't teach monogamy. You know, th this, these kind of these statements. Sarah's like, excuse me? Um, but the fact of the matter is the Bible does, and so we do what the Bible says. The Bible says what sin is, and whether I think it's sin or not, is immaterial. I should not sin. What the Bible says is sin, I should not do. And what the Bible says is the gospel is the gospel. 
And it doesn't matter how big the church is that's built by somebody teaching a false gospel. It doesn't matter how influential or powerful they are. It doesn't matter what they produce or sell. If it's not the gospel according to the scriptures, it's not the gospel. And I'm called to speak the gospel. As uncomfortable as it may be for me, as difficult as it may be for you, that's our calling and our place. And we are called to do it by the one who saved us. We're not called to do it ourselves. Guys, if I could do anything else in my life, and I know that I'm a vocational minister and I get paid to do this and all this stuff, if I could do anything else, I would. There is a deep, deep bitterness to being a minister of the gospel that cannot be denied. There is a hard reality. I have to do funerals. I've done, I've done now a couple of funerals for people who have died of heroin overdoses. There is no joy in that. There is no joy in sitting with a couple who is getting uh, separated and they're, not, they're, they're headed for destruction and it's all because of sin on one or both parties. Not every, not every separation is like that, but there are some that are like that and you sit there and you say, this is sin. Of course, you guys all know my counseling advice. Okay, what sin are you doing? Stop doing that. Um, and they say, I don't want to. I don't care. I'm going to continue the, the path I am. There is a deep-seated bitterness to that. But God has called me, He equips me, and I do what He called me to do. And the same is true for you. He has called us to be the church. And the church proclaims the Gospel. And the church does not compromise. And the church will speak to those who will hear and those who will not. But our encouragement is that God knows. He has equipped you for this moment and this time and this life to be agents of the gospel. We give praise and honor to Him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our worship, as we bring glory to You in the observance of the Lord's table, we ask that Your glory would be manifest in us. That the, the sweetness of the gospel and the bitterness of of the gospel. You bring both together to make us agents, instruments, excuse me, tools for your spirit to speak into the lives of those who need to hear from you. Help us to be uncompromising, to be loving, to be caring, to be giving, to be truthful, to be honest, but to be uncompromising and our commitment to the work of the Spirit that You have given us. We pray this knowing that it is so. In Jesus' name.